Hello, and welcome to The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, the movies, and the career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. This is episode four of the podcast, and finally the time has come to talk about Rye Cooter's first solo album. In a way, this is where our podcast really begins. From now on, most episodes will focus on individual albums and later on individual films or team efforts like the supergroup Little Village in the early 90s. But we won't lose sight of Cooter's session music either. At the end of each episode, we will usually tell you everything you need to know about Cooter's guest appearances. In addition, we will continue to focus on particularly important guest albums or longer collaborations and bonus episodes for our Patreon subscribers. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who supports the podcast on Patreon. You are a huge help and make it possible for this labor of love to continue. But now back to 1970 when Rai Cooter's solo career began. So here we go. In the early 70s, the music scene began to change. The range was more diverse than ever before. In rock, new genres such as glam, prog, and hard rock emerged, and later punk. In the mainstream, disco, funk, and soul dominated. In 1970, artists like Elton John, The Jackson Five, Diana Ross, Neil Diamond, and Simon and Garfunkel topped the charts. What does all this have to do with Rye Cooter? Exactly, nothing. As he worked on his debut for the first eight months of the year, he remained true to himself in every way. His orientation was still in the world of the old blues. Whether the market was interested in that, whether anyone was interested in that, didn't matter to him. An interesting question is how it came about that such an idiosyncratic and out-of-time individualist could make a record under the roof of a big studio as Warner Brothers. To understand this, we need to back up a bit. Let's go back 10 years to 1960, when Frank Sinatra thought he needed more artistic freedom. He founded the music label Reprise Records and signed Rat Pack colleagues like Dean Martin and Sammy Davis, but sold the studio to Warner Brothers in 1963 as part of a movie deal. In the years that followed, Warner Reprise became something completely different. Now, executives were increasingly focused on the growing rock and pop business, in 1967, a young man was hired as producer. He would shape the label's fortunes for several decades. Lenny Waronker, born in 1941, the son of violinist and Liberty Records founder Simon Waronker. Lenny Waronker started at Warner's with the mission of creating top 40 hits for a label that was almost entirely absent from that lucrative field. He soon found success with Harper's Bazaar and the Mojo Men. Not much later, though, he changed direction. In 1968, he produced Song Cycle, a landmark collaboration with Van Dyke Parks. Encouraged by Reprise President Mo Austin, he also recorded with songwriter Randy Newman, his closest friend since childhood. In 1995, he told the San Francisco Chronicle, The 60s were a weird time. Anything you could do that was original or interesting was okay. Anytime you followed the rules, you didn't feel cool. In the years that followed, Waronker established a kind of Warner gang, 
a network of highly talented producers, arrangers, writers, and musicians who worked together in ever-changing constellations. Among them were Jack Nitsche and Russ Teitelman, whom we met in previous episodes of the podcast. Other important figures were the aforementioned Van Dyke Parks and Randy Newman. Parks was born in 1943. He began his career in the Metropolitan Opera Boys Chorus and appeared in front of the camera alongside Grace Kelly in 1955. He established a recording career as a performer, arranger, producer, and songwriter in 1963 when he moved to Los Angeles to become involved in the growing West Coast beatnik subculture. That year he had his first professional film music job as an arranger, and in 1964 he signed his first contract with MGM Records as a singer-songwriter. In 1969, Parks joined Warner Brothers Records as Vice President of Audiovisual Services. He enjoyed a reputation as a highly educated eccentric and musical genius. Randy Newman was also born in 1943. He came from a family of movie composers and began writing songs at the age of 17. Early Newman songs were sung by Dusty Springfield, Jackie DeShan, and others. The band Harper's Bazaar performed as many as six Newman compositions. Both the albums like Park's Song Cycle or Randy Newman's self-titled Debut, both released in 1968, became symbols of Reprise's new policy of helping idiosyncratic musicians find a voice, even if their complex and challenging work was far from chart material. As Waronker explained to Musician Magazine in 1994, The combination of that commitment, signing artists like Newman and Rye Cooter, and hanging with artists who weren't obviously successful but were out there pioneering, helped establish that there was this artist point of view. It felt better for me, even if the royalty checks weren't there. But you know, there is a method behind all this lofty artistic bullshit. If you aligned yourself with that, there would be a payoff. Artists like James Taylor gravitated toward us. Cooter had been part of the Warner production roster since the late 60s, working regularly as a session musician with Nietzsche, Teitelman, Newman, and Parks. It set the stage for many years of collaboration, with members of the gang helping each other out on each other's works or collaborating on albums by other Warner Brothers artists. Oronker first met Cooter during the sessions for the Everly Brothers Roots album. He had never heard anyone play bottleneck guitar before. He remembered Cooter. Rye was the youngest of all those guys, but he had the wisdom of an old man. When Nietzsche brought him into my office, I was shocked. I had assumed he was way older than he turned out to be. He was an amazing character. You knew that when he walked in the room. But when I heard him play, I said, forget about the Everly Brothers, let's do that. It seemed like a great thing to mess around with. You could tell this guy was so special. Incidentally, Cooter is not credited on the Roots album. But there is a lot of great guitar work on this early country rock jewel, even though there is no recognizable Cooter playing on it. As we'll see, Cooter would later return to session work for the Everlease. But Cooter was more than ready to do his own thing as he told the Los Angeles Times in 1986. It was obvious to me by the time I was 20 that if I wanted to keep playing the same rock and roll bottleneck licks, I could work a lot of recording sessions and make some money. But I also knew that I'd eventually be strip mined. 
I could feel it beginning to happen. The repetition and the tendency for people to say quite simply, just do the same thing you did on that last record. You try to tell them you could do something better, but they'd say, we don't want better. We want the same. So in 1969, Cooter signed his own record deal with Warner Brothers. At first, the company expected him to make an instrumental album. That would have been the obvious thing to do, but Cooter wasn't interested in a pure bottleneck showcase. Instead, he wanted to rework some of his old favorites, as he told Record Collector magazine in 2014. I loved all these old songs and wanted to see how I might be able to accomplish something in a modern setting, with a rhythm section. That's what everybody was doing. All the great folk and traditional records had already been made, and I didn't see any reason to go down that road again. The rhythm section was the thing. Plus, I was fascinated by drumming. The syncopation, the feeling and tempo were exciting. As for the songs, I wasn't thinking of writing any, it just never occurred to me. I loved the lyrics and language of those old songs, especially the vocabulary. It was so appealing and visual. It was my magic carpet, I guess. The things they depict, especially the historic songs about the Dust Bowl and the way of life there, really fascinated me. In December 1970, Rye Cooter's eponymous Dead You album was released. The cover, photographed at Dry Lake El Mirage by Frank Bez, shows Cooter wearing a hat and a long black coat, leaning against a shiny 1937 Airstream trailer. The vehicle is parked somewhere in the desert, while the sun sets in an orange glow in the background. At the top, in red and white neon and capital letters, is the name, Rye Cooter. The image has a slightly irritating retro feel. It suggests the vastness of the Old West, while at the same time there is a hint of irony in the garish lettering. The back, on the other hand, is completely devoid of pomp. In a black and white photo taken by Cooter's wife, Susan Teitelman, Cooter smiles at us, hands high on his lapel, friendly and unassuming. The album was produced by Lenny Waronker and Van Dyke Parks. Lee Hirschberg, one of the top engineers at Warner's, recorded and mixed it with the help of four other engineers. Look at this one, look at that one. Alimony, the first of 11 psalms, opens the album. A pitiful man begs the judge to reduce his alimony payments. After all, only two of his six children resemble him. The others must have been fathered by his dubious friends. Alimony, first released in 1965, was written by Brenda Lee Jones, Walton Young, and Robert Higginbotham, better known as Tommy Tucker, who also performed the song. As Tucker interprets it, it's a rather innocuous soul ditty that fails to capture either the seriousness or the irony of the situation. Please have mercy, judge your honor. I'm as poor as I can be. A simple drum beat propels the song forward without much variety, but at least there is a playful electric guitar, which probably gave Cooter the idea to tickle more out of this template. Cooter plays the song much slower and with a very low voice, giving it a certain gravitas. 
He enriches it with gospel-backing vocals by Gloria Jones and a sparingly used barrelhouse piano by Van Dyke Parks. Above all, he lets two different guitars compete with and against each other. The result is both funny and sad. The very first song on the first album deals with two central themes around which many of Cooter's songs would revolve. The battle of the sexes, which is usually lost by the cuckolded man against the superior, because more refined woman, and poverty. Severe existential poverty expressed here in the line ain't had money in my pockets since way back in 53. Joel Selvin writing for the San Francisco Chronicle in 1995, sums it all up. The slashing slide, funky rhythm drive, and gnarly vocals on Alimony boldly announced a towering new talent, who continues to fulfill that promise all these years later. Song number two is France Chance. It's based on Love Me Baby Blues by Delta Blues singer Mississippi Joe Calicott. Oh, down, baby, a pure lament blues, the sigh of a forlorn man whose lover has left town. As in Robert Johnson's Love in Vain, the train station is a symbolic place of separation, where tears flow like showers of rain. Our tragic hero simply doesn't stand a chance against the other guy. Cooter omits the end of Calicut's lyrics. It reveals that the beautiful young woman has run off with all the money. No wonder the blues starts calling. Cooter transforms the simple blues into a complex arrangement of several guitars, which he first recorded and then synchronized in a five-hour process. Only the strange percussion and the barely audible piano were played by other musicians, namely Milt Holland and Van Dyke Parks. Next up is One Meatball, another variation on the theme of poverty, in which Cooter explicitly sides with the little man. The song is about a poor guy who goes to a restaurant, but can only afford one meatball. He is therefore humiliated by a snottish waiter. The song seems to take us straight into Depression America of the 1920s and 30s, but in fact it goes back to a poem called The Lay of the Lone Fishball, which dates back to the mid-19th century. It later became an Italian burlesque opera, and finally, in 1944, the song One Meat Ball, modernized by Lou Singer and High Zaret. For Josh White, it was his greatest hit. Well, the little man walked up and down to find an eating place in town. He read the menu through and Cents could do one meatball, 
Again, Cooter maintains a delicate balance between humor and tragedy. We feel sympathy for the panelist restaurant patron, but the comedic intensification is also clearly noticeable. Early on, Cooter proves to be a musical stone face who is not concerned with clear messages. In any case, one meatball is far from being the La Men blues. The strain arrangement exaggerates the pathos of the little man's situation. It almost feels like a scene from a big movie. The strings were arranged by Van Dyke Parks. He said the most fun he had producing the album was modulating up a half-step on one meatball. The next song takes us into the world of Dust Bowl ballads for the first time. To understand what this is all about, we need a little historical background. The Dust Bowl is the name given to the arid plains of the U.S. states of Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, New Mexico, and Colorado. In the 19th century, the government lured many settlers there, poor immigrants from Poland, Germany, or Ireland, as well as former black slaves hoping for a better life as farmers. But just a few decades later, much of the region was overgrazed. When, in the midst of the Great Depression of 1931, an enormous drought followed, the results were terrible. The dusty soil was washed away by storms, farms were destroyed, and livelihoods were wiped out. Families had no choice but to flee. In 1939, John Steinbeck described the depressing mass migration in his famous novel, The Grapes of Wrath. And folk singer Woody Guthrie addressed the fate of the so-called Okies in his song, Do Re Mi. In an interview with Alan Lomax, he said, Most of the people in the Dust Bowl talked about California. The reason they talked about California was that they had seen all the pretty pictures about California, and they'd heard all the pretty songs about California, and they had read all the handbills about coming to California and picking fruit. And these people naturally said, Well, if this dust keeps on blowing the way it is, we're gonna have to go somewhere, and most of them, I dare say 75% of them, was in favor of going to California because they had heard about the climate there. You could sleep outdoors at night, and any type of seed that you put down in the ground, why, it would grow back out again and all such things as that made all these people want to go to California. An estimated 2 million people were wandering the land at the time. To them, California may have seemed like the promised land, but in reality, the people and economy of the West Coast were not much better off than the rest of the country. In any case, the refugees were anything but welcome. Do Re Mi is about that dilemma. The folks from back East think they're going from the Dust Bowl to a Sugar Bowl, but they have to learn the hard way that California is no Garden of Eden. If you have nothing, if you ain't got the Do Re Mi, you better stay where you are. It's a sobering, timeless message, as true in 1970 when Rai Cooter recorded it as it is today, perhaps more so than ever. Lots of folks back east, they say, is leaving home every day, beating the hot old dusty way to the California line. Across the desert sands they roll, getting out of that old dust bowl. They think they're going to a sugar bowl, but here's what they find. Now the police at the port of entry say, you're number 14,000 for today. Oh, if you ain't got the do re mi Guthrie's classic folk song is a highlight of Cooter's album. It points in several directions at once. On the one hand, it contains the kind of social commentary that runs throughout Cooter's work. 
We find it in many of the old tunes he dredged up on his early albums. But we also find it in his later work, and the bitterly ironic original compositions with which he has surprised us in the new millennium. In passing, Do Re Min also deals with the subject of borders, which Cooter will often deal with. And last but not least, the adaptation of a Woody Guthrie song is, of course, something like a reminiscence of his youth and early musical influences. And what does Cooter do? He gives the old tune a rock and roll makeover. It's a modern arrangement that reminded one reviewer of the band. Cooter's dominant electric guitar is accompanied by Milt Holland's drums, with additional orchestration conducted by Kirby Johnson, the strings again arranged by Van Dyke Parks. It's a powerful reinvention of the original and would become a staple in Cooter's live repertoire. For Fred Metting, writing in 2001, The mix seems a bit incongruous at times. But Guthrie's tale of oaky, Edenic hopes and California borderline disappointment speaks to us even today, as displaced workers consider greener pastures. Song number five is also rooted in American history, but on a different level. The ballad, My Old Kentucky Home Goodnight, dates from the mid-19th century. Composer Stephen Foster was inspired by the anti-slavery novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. The song has been adapted and developed many times. In the early 20th century, it was chosen as the state song of Kentucky. In the mid-1960s, a young Randy Newman took the good hymn and turned it into biting comedy with the help of deadpan irony. In the process, he diffused Foster's controversial line, "'Tis summer, the darkies are gay." With him, young folks now are rolling on the floor. According to Newman biographers David and Caroline Stafford, the verses are Randy's own. They present vignettes of a delightfully dysfunctional family, told with a sort of tall tale, front porch, Mark Twain, mountain humor. Newman's version was first performed by the Bo Brummels in 1967 on their album Triangle. Three years later, Newman presented his own version on his album Twelve Songs, an album, by the way, on which Cooter is featured on several tracks as a sly guitarist and to which we dedicate a bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers. Like Rye Cooter's debut, 12 Songs was released in 1970. It's yet another example of the Warner gang working together. The sun shines bright on my old Kentucky Cooter slows down the tempo of the song considerably. The irony remains palpable, but with a deep, almost plaintive voice he dispels the mockery and instead emphasizes the darker aspects. With him, the sun doesn't shine so bright. When we talked about Do Re Mi and how relevant it is today, 
The same goes for the last song on side one, How Can a Poor Man Stand Such Times and Live? In an almost painful way, it is even more topical, with references to skyrocketing prices, impotent consumers, and cops who kill for no reason. It's a folk song originally recorded in 1929 by blind Alfred Reed, accompanying himself on the violin. It tells of hard times during the Great Depression and is considered an early example of a protest song. In 2020, it was added to the Grammy Hall of Fame. There was once a time when everything was cheap, but now prices almost put some lamb to sleep. When we pay our grocery bill, we just feel like making our will. Tell me, how can a poor man stand such times and live? Cooter maintains the authenticity of the song, but with a strong rock and roll influence. His electric guitar licks are incisive and visceral. The orchestration was conducted by Kirby Johnson. Cooter's version rearranges and shortens the verses compared to Reed's original. All the lyrics are from the original version, but the language is slightly modernized. In the middle, there is a break with a longer instrumental part. Again, the violins play an important role, but especially Cooter's fantastic slide guitar makes the song a highlight. Like Do Re Mi, it became a staple of Cooter's live repertoire. Side 2 begins with Available Space, the only Cooter original on the album. It's an instrumental, and presumably this is how Warners would have envisioned an album with only instrumentals. Not such a bad idea. The vocals are not missing a bit, so brilliant is the interplay of the different guitars. If you weren't a Cooter slide guitar fan before, you will become one now. Hartenbach of AllMusic.com wrote, As great as his outside choices are, it's the exuberant charm of his own instrumental available space that nearly steals the show. Its joyful interplay between Cooter's slide, Van Dyke Park's music hall piano, and the street corner drumming creates a piece that is both loose and sophisticated. Next up is what you might call the strangest and most difficult song on the album. Pig Meat, originally written by Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Lead Belly. As mentioned before, he was a major influence on Cooter, who over the course of time adapted several of his songs. Huddy Ledbetter was born in Louisiana in 1888. He was a virtuoso 12-string guitarist with an amazing ability to memorize any song once he heard it. He spent much of his life in prison until he was discovered by John Avery Lomax on a Library of Congress recording trip. Lomax arranged for Lead Belly's early release and brought him to New York. In 1935, Lead Belly first recorded Pig Meat, then called Pig Meat Papa. 
He was a proud man with a large repertoire, unhappy with the way Lomax presented him in public. He even went so far as to dress him in prison garb on stage. Years later, he met Moses Ash, a radio engineer who had started a small record company, Ash Records, and later became the founder of Folkways Records. Lead Belly had made a number of recordings for the major record companies, but they never really figured out what to do with him. So Ash took him under his wing and first let him record what he really wanted. This is Lead Belly's Folkways recording of Pigmeat, with Brownie McGee on guitar. Just look at your mama, you don't treat Pigmeat the way you should. You don't treat being me the way you should. If you don't believe this is being me, as anybody in your neighborhood. You can read long discussions about the meaning of this song, especially about the meaning of the word pigmeat. Maybe, as some believe, it's slang for a young girl, the so-called jailbait. In that case, the song would be a kind of warning not to treat her badly. She shouldn't be taken for something that can be treated badly, perhaps even abused, without consequences. Another interpretation is that the word pig meat is taken literally as pork. In this reading, the narrator warns his wife or mother not to buy the wrong kind of meat. He suggests that she should ask around the neighborhood and not believe that it is actually pig meat. This highlights the pervasive inequality that people of color faced, even when it came to something as basic as their food a subject Lead Belly naturally dealt with often, with understandable bitterness. Be that as it may, in a 1970 interview, Cooter told Bill Henderson about the production of his version. We wrote Pygmy to sound like an old street band. Van Dyke wrote out with my direction. Since I don't read or write music, he wrote this chart. That was very difficult. Cello and trombone, and very convoluted. The point there was, we couldn't get players. You can't get players to duplicate the old bands. The New Orleans guys fingered in a traditional way. They'd breathe backwards or something, which is a regional style like bottleneck or blues mandolin. It's not carried forth. People don't learn it. We wrote this charge to stumble those L.A. horn players. They get out of their Rolls Royce, and they come in with their Chinese mustache and yellow sunglasses. They see this chart, and they go, What's this? They stumble through it the first time and ask, what is this? They weren't angry, but really contemptuous of it. We gave them one take. Then they wanted to do it again. But we said, no, we like it that way. They said, but it's wrong. It's so uneven. And we said, that's precisely what we wanted it to sound. Everything about this song is kind of weird, from the piano and horn interplay at the beginning, to Cooter's borderline awful vocals, to the old-fashioned oompa arrangement. It's a bold, crazy experiment. Someone called it punk. The next track, Police Dog Blues, is almost the opposite, a simple blues with only acoustic guitar and vocals. 
Unlike Lead Belly, little is known about the performer. We're not sure of his birthplace, and even his name is in question. Arthur Blake, better known as Blind Blake, traveled extensively in the Southeast. He recorded the Police Dog Blues in 1929 while under contract to Paramount Records. He was a gifted guitarist with a penchant for ragtime. Police Dog Blues is about the struggles of a traveling man and his inability to find true love. He meets a woman, but she rejects him, probably because of his lifestyle or the reputation of his kind. He is afraid to approach her because she has a rambling guard dog. He decides to avoid the beast and move on. All my life I've been a traveling man. All my life I've been a traveling man. Staying alone and doing the best I can. I ship my trunk down to Tennessee. Dip my trunk down to Tennessee. It's hard to tell about a man like me. Cooter stays very close to the original. He just tweaks the lyrics here and there. In doing so, he shows that he masters the old style as well as the radical modernization. He said about Johnson's playing style. That stuff is very good for finger picking. If you can play Blind Blake, you can play anything because it teaches you independence. Next up is another highlight of the album, Going to Brownsville, written and originally performed by Sleepy John Estes. When Rye Cooter's father told him at a young age that his beloved blues musicians were usually field hands who didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of, he was probably talking about somebody like Sleepy John Estes. Estes, who was born in Ripley, Tennessee, probably in 1900, and later moved to Brownsville, did indeed fit the stereotype of the plantation worker who eventually starts playing the blues. Among the first songs he recorded under professional conditions in Memphis in 1929 was Going to Brownsville. Like Police Dog Blues, it's a simple guitar piece, and again it's about a lonely wanderer and his unrequited love. Musically, however, Cooter completely reinvents the song. It is carried by a ravishing mandolin that is initially accompanied by a hard, clapping rhythm. According to Cooter, the sound was created by Jack Nitsche banging on an orange crate. Later, different layers of the electric slide guitar join in and add a strong, plaintive accent. As Fred Metting stated, The listener is treated to both the early country blues essence and the magic of modern recording techniques. Cooter's multi-instrumental virtuosity is evident once again. I'm going to Brownsville Take that right-hand roll 
The album's final song is an instrumental, Dark is the Night. Originally called Dark was the Night, Cold was the Ground, it was recorded in 1927 by the legendary bluesman Blind Willie Johnson. Cooter has called it the most transcendent piece in all American music. It's a powerful, touching lament, and exactly the slide guitar style Cooter refers to. Blind Willie Johnson was born on a farm in Marlin, Texas, in 1897. When he was about seven, his stepmother, in revenge on his father, threw lie in his face and blinded him. When he began to sing and play guitar, a harsh, desolate sense of loneliness came into his music, as musicologist Sam Charters put it. In the late 20s, he recorded 30 songs for Columbia Records. His main source for Dark Was the Night was an 18th century hymn by Thomas Hawes, an English physician and clergyman. It was often played in church, with the leader singing a line and the congregation responding. In 1977, a recording of Johnson's haunting tune was sent into space with other cultural artifacts on the Voyager spacecraft. Cooter retitled the song Dark Is the Night, his stripped-down arrangement with no vocals, is atmospheric and translates the innate, forlorn character of the blues. Critic Brett Hartenbach wrote, If available space is the record's most playful moment, it's closer, dark as the night, is the converse, with Cooter's stark acoustic slide extracting every ounce of torment from blind Willie Johnson's mournful masterpiece. Fred Metting added, Cooter has captured the essence of the instrumental and has come close to Johnson's original performance. Much emotion is conveyed through microtones, through the stopping of the slide between frets, between notes. This is the musical equivalent of emotional yearning, longing. Ry Cooter's debut album cost about $50,000 to produce, money that the album did not initially recoup after its release in December 1970. Critics generally received it favorably, but the public took little notice of Cooter's reinvention of the blues. In an interview with the New Musical Express, Cooter said in 1972, That first album was very experimental and kinda shaky. I'd never done anything like it, and I didn't really have a direction in mind. It was chaotic at times, but there was some good stuff on there. Brownsville was good. France Chance was awful good. Nobody cares for it much. The singing is not that strong, but I'd never done any singing before. Some songs I'd like to record again. Not all reviews were kind either. Melody Maker wrote, 
If Rycooter were trying to make it on the ability of his singing voice alone, he would be out faster than you could say Leon Russell. Cooter is sweet and good-looking, but the boy can't carry a tune. Not even a Woody Guthrie tune. What he can do is play guitar. Bottleneck guitar. Rolling Stone magazine said, Cooter's own work ranges in quality from the intriguingly experimental to the utterly embarrassing. Why this is the case isn't entirely clear, but it must have to do with the guitarist's willingness to try anything. That seems to be the undoing of his debut, Rye Cooter. Although the album has its moments, including Randy Newman's acrid Old Kentucky Home and a delightfully unadorned mandolin version of Sleepy John Estes going to Brownsville, it also ends up lumbered with the overwrought arrangements of One Meatball and Lead Belly's Pig Meat. Critic Brett Hartenbach, writing for AllMusic.com, said, Some of the eccentric arrangements may prove to be a bit much for both purists and pop audiences alike, but still, cooters need to stretch, tempered with a reverence for the past helps to create a completely original work that should reward adventurous listeners. Somewhere over in Florida, a young record producer was definitely one of those adventurous listeners. His name was Jim Dickinson. Many years later, he would write in his memoir. One day, I listened to my treasures after a record-buying orgy in Coral Gables. I discovered Rye Cooter's debut album. The cover displayed a tall black caped figure leaning against a shining silver Airstream trailer looking like a young Gary Cooper. Cooter had played on the Dale Hawkins album, Captain Beefheart's Safe as Milk, and with Taj Mahal in the band, Rising Suns. The music was from Mars, backwards reverse suspension, convoluted mountain melody, spun together into a soup of folk-oriented space blues, sung with a dry, croaking, cartoonish sarcasm. We had finished Aretha Franklin and Sam and Dave. Not bad but I couldn't help wishing I was working on this high-end Hollywood art rock. It wouldn't be long before his dream came true. The long and fruitful collaboration between Rye Cooter and Jim Dickinson would begin with Cooter's next album. But more on that in our next episode. Cooter's debut album has long since become a classic and fascinates precisely because of its versatility and the astonishing confidence with which Cooter combines different styles. The basses may be old blues, but what emerges from the first minute is something new and unique. And does anyone really have a problem with Cooter's voice? Not me. In November 1970, Cooter made his concert debut at an Elton John show at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Los Angeles. Van Dyke Parks was there to back him up on piano. According to Melody Maker magazine, Cooter was nervous at first, but stopped shaking after the second song. It wasn't exactly an overwhelming success for him, but he got his share of applause and someone even yelled more. It was the beginning of a six-week tour with shows in Detroit, Cincinnati, and New York City where Cooter opened for an old friend, Captain Beefart. In his role as head of the audiovisual department at Warner Brothers, Van Dyke Parks commissioned a short promotional film about Cooter's debut. With a budget of $18,500, the result was a 14-minute mix of music video, concert film, and short portrait. The film opens with Cooter arriving at a farm in a pink shirt and station wagon, towing the Airstream trailer from the album cover. He sings songs like Do Rain Me, How Can a Poor Man Stand Such Times and Live, and Going to Brownsville. The film is on YouTube, 
You'll find the link in the show notes. Cooter also presents his very first guitar, a 1940 Martin. In the interview, he comes out as an anti-hippie. He says sentences like, The songs I like are about people and the country. If I were to write a song, I'd like to write about positive values. I don't think too much in terms of changing things. It's not what I'm interested in. I like what's there already, you know. And that brings us to the end of episode four of the Rye Cooter story. Thanks for listening. In our next episode, we'll talk about some of Cooter's session work and about his second solo album, Into the Purple Valley. Meanwhile, you'll find us on social media or you can visit our website. As usual, you'll find the links in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast, then please head on over to Patreon slash The Rye Cooter Story and become a member. Membership comes with all sorts of benefits, including bonus episodes on Cooter's important guest or session albums. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.